This is The Guardian. Today, the war in Ukraine, as it looks from Russia. All right, guys, so I'm in Moscow, Russia right now. I'm in my my bedroom, which is the room with the TV in it. And uh, we're going to turn it on and see what Russian state TV is playing right now, what people are watching. Right now, uh, the first channel is Rossiya Adin. Right now, we have what appears to be a commercial for Sberbank, which has just recently been sanctioned. Andrew Roth is based in Moscow for The Guardian. And this week, we asked him to do some channel hopping and tell us what Russians are seeing right now on TV. We keep going up. We have clearly a kind of TV uh, soap opera. Uh, next up is uh, TV Zvezda. This is the military-run uh, TV station. They do have that here. A lot of it isn't so unusual. And finally, we get to... Channel 1, which is the, I guess, main state-run channel in Russia. Except when you get to the news. And the show is called Balshai Igra, which means the great game. And this is a television show where a bunch of men stand around a big map of the world or of Ukraine. And at the moment, they're looking at a big table and the word fake is written right in the center of it. Uh, And fakes have been a big discussion today. What they are seeing is a Russian-speaking population under fire, being liberated by their soldiers. They're showing images of destroyed houses, of uh, what look like refugees, and he's making it clear that uh, all of this is because of what was done to the Russian side by the Ukrainian side, so once again putting the blame on them uh, and saying that, you know, we basically are, are happy that Russia has finally come to our aid. What they aren't seeing is bombed-out Ukrainian cities, wreckages of Russian tanks, captured prisoners of war. And they're kind of having an on-air interview where he's talking about kind of the war as it's ongoing, uh, really focusing on, you know, how bad the Ukrainian side is. And this is a big focus, is kind of moving from the, the news side of saying, look at all these terrible attacks being carried out by the Ukrainians, Uh, And this is the way that a lot of, I think, Russians are getting their news right now. It's propaganda, but it still tells you something about the war Vladimir Putin wishes he was running and the different, far more brutal war that he's now trying to sell. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what Russians are being told about the war in Ukraine. Andrew, last Thursday, most of us woke to the news that Ukraine was being bombed and invaded by Russian forces. We were seeing footage of Ukrainian cities being shelled or refugees starting to leave cities like Kyiv. How were those unbelievable scenes being reported in Moscow? Very differently. I think if you were a viewer in Russia uh, from watching TV or from reading what we call the official sources here, 
you would have a completely different view of this war than if you were in the West watching BBC or CNN. And the way that it's been presented to Russians has been kind of very carefully calibrated um, to show you a little bit about, I guess, what kind of war the Kremlin really wanted to wage. Okay, and what kind of war was that? So, so far, what we've seen since last Thursday is that uh, Russia has tried to present this war very carefully, uh, not as a big invasion, not as this kind of massive war of aggression, as many people see it, but as a special operation to denazify parts of Ukraine. But if you turn on any of the main TV channels, you would basically see at the very beginning a very close focus on the kind of cities and places that have been in the news and have been fought over for the last eight years, since 2014. And there was very little coverage and almost no coverage of rocket strikes against cities like Kiev or Kharkiv. And so there was an idea from watching TV that um, we could almost get the sense that Russia was hoping that this would be a very quick war uh, and that it would almost be over before Russians even realized it ever happened. It sounds like the Kremlin was really at pains here to present at least the early days of this fighting as something in which the Russians were the good guys. I mean, they, they were doing the liberating. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And one of the most interesting factors of it is that it does seem like the propaganda uh, issues and the kind of way that they wanted to present the propaganda of this war almost dictated uh, their military policy and their strategy to a certain degree. One of the most uh, unexplainable things about what the Russians have done so far is that they haven't really fought like the Russian army usually does, or like it would fight against, let's say, NATO or a foreign power. Uh, At the very beginning of the war, they had these very risky attacks that involved paratroopers, uh, or units going very fast at Kiev and kind of other other critical cities, um, but in particular, maybe trying to get to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. For most Russians, the idea that Russia would launch a massive attack on Ukraine would come as an enormous shock. Uh, the idea that Russians would kill Ukrainians uh, is something that I think that sentence would just shock most Russians. And most Russians wouldn't like the idea that they are shelling or even flattening, you know, certain areas of cities like Kharkiv or Kiev. These are places they visited. Uh, These are places where a lot of them have relatives and there are a lot of connections. And it almost feels like what would be a much more difficult operation to justify, which would involve tanks, heavy artillery, and things like that would be so difficult that they would prefer to put their own troops at risk with this very light footprint attack, uh, than deal with maybe the backlash that a major war against Ukraine would bring. That's really fascinating that they fear the backlash so much that it actually dictates the way that they they carried out the war. But tell me about Russia's media environment in general. Is it the kind of place where you're likely to get a vigorous debate about something as momentous as a war on Ukraine? In this case, no. The way that Russian media works is interesting because they're directed by the things that Vladimir Putin says, and they do have some curation from the Kremlin, but it also involves some creativity on the parts of Uh, these pro-Kremlin speakers, pro-Kremlin TV hosts, um, who have gotten quite good at kind of creating a Kremlin line, following the Kremlin line, and I guess filling in some of the blanks uh, around the things that Vladimir Putin or his lieutenants say as well. So TV kind of fills in the the spaces that maybe the Kremlin can't explain very well, um, or that kind of needs some fleshing out. And 
obviously you're not going to come here for a kind of debate on the issue, but they will imitate a debate on the issue. Do we need to do this? Oh, we do. Why do we need to do this? Well, you know, we can show you why that is right here. And so if the debates that you're seeing on the mainstream media, at least, are in essence kind of fake debates, are there real dissenting voices out there? Like, are there outlets that are saying something that is genuinely challenging to that mainstream line? There are outlets that are going straight to the public and talking openly about uh, the war that's taking place, uh, newspapers like Novaya Gazeta. But what we're seeing is that they're under tremendous pressure from the Kremlin. So one of the main requirements of the Russian uh, regulator here is that three words not be used in order to describe this special operation. And those words are war, invasion, or attack. Hmm. The idea is to completely erase the idea of a Russian war of aggression. So those stations have been put in front of a very difficult decision. They've been told by the Kremlin, either describe this war the way that we want you to, or we're going to close you down. And so what we've seen is that as of Tuesday evening, the Kremlin made the decision to actually start shutting down some of Russia's most storied opposition or independent media outlets. One of them in particular, Echo of Moscow, is a radio station that's one of the most popular in the country. Uh, it's listened to in, you know, lots of homes. You get into a taxi, Echo of Moscow will often be on. Uh, it's always been pretty open for opposition-minded people. Uh, as of this morning, Echo of Moscow has been blocked in Russia because of their reporting on the war in Ukraine. It looks small versus the bombings of houses in Kharkiv and in Kiev, but in any other week, this would be a massive story in Russia because the idea that uh, you could close down a radio station like this overnight with no big protests, with no big pushback, really indicates uh, how heavily the Kremlin is really pushing the narrative of what this war is supposed to be. Andrew, you told me that the Russian media coverage of the first days of this war reflected perhaps the war that the Russians wanted to have. But that isn't really how it's gone. Over the past week, we've seen that the Ukrainians, who are badly outgunned, have actually put up incredible resistance to the Russian army. They've hung on to cities. They've slowed the Russian advance to the capital, Kiev. Do you see any sign of that in the Russian propaganda? So one thing that I did while I've been writing about uh, kind of propaganda this week and what's on television is I talked to a reporter for BBC Monitoring whose job is basically to get in front of the TV during the day and keep a very close eye on what's being shown, how much of these kind of especially you know political talk shows are being shown, how much entertainment uh, versus news programming is being shown, and most importantly to basically follow the message of what Russian state TV are, are trying to push. So this guy is just watching Russian TV all day, every day? Basically, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the main sort of focus of his job. What did he tell you about, about the way the messaging had changed over the past week? I expected him to say that their messaging had really changed a lot, but he said that the core of what Russian TV is showing uh, is really still the same. I'm not sure. What, what are you seeing on TV right now? So they are talking about 
the war across the whole country, but the focus is definitely on the offensive in in Donbass. They are occasionally referring to it as a war, but they kind of say it, it's um, a necessary war. It was the the only only option we had left. Andrew, the Russian Defence Ministry admitted this week it had lost nearly 500 troops, which you know could be an underestimate, but still a pretty stark admission. Do you think the Russians are now acknowledging that what we're seeing in Ukraine is not a special military operation at all, that it's something closer to a full-scale invasion? I think that they're moving toward that. And when they are forced to you know, admit to families that, that their sons and brothers and husbands were killed, they're forced to, to kind of double down, I think, on the reasons for why they're involved in this war, um, to say this person didn't die in vain. And so I think of it just as the Russian government is quickly becoming more and more invested in winning this war. And they're saying, like, oh, it's not, you know, it's all fake coming from the West. NTV on its program last night did like a kind of one of its pretend investigations into the West producing fakes. Um, and this is all like part of the West's information war against us. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so one thing that they had started to do was to work on kind of myth busting and, and talking about fakes. It's a way of acknowledging these things that normal people might be seeing in their regular lives, but at the same time, help give people these talking points uh, to deal with, uh, you know, information that might contradict what the message of the war is supposed to be. I think they're kind of having to admit now that there's a full-scale war, and before it sort of almost just seemed like a kind of surgical operation. And, you know, as he said, they had on occasion, use the word war to describe what was taking place as well. And it was kind of recognizing what it was, but easing people into it, moving into this idea that we are at war with Ukraine very slowly. And in terms of the justification that they're using for what's actually going on in Ukraine, has that shifted or is it still about denazification, demilitarization, all those early terms they were using to explain you know, why they were suddenly at war in parts of Ukraine? It's very heavily sticking to those original terms and almost it's using the kind of the bones of the argument to explain why the war is growing to a certain degree. Do they talk about the exact goals of what that means? Not really. I mean, they just they just talk about like how saying Ukraine has got this Nazi leadership. They have talked about about, about like the leadership being tried. Um, they have talked but about they've that. But they've been saying that right from the beginning. Um, that's not like a new thing. Okay. And that's a way of kind of backing into an explanation of why uh, we're seeing videos of Russian missiles and Russian artillery striking Ukrainian cities, uh, because the argument is basically that we're being provoked uh, or that these you know, Ukrainian ultranationalists uh, have uh, lured us or are trying to lure us into these strikes against Ukrainian cities. They'll always kind of find a way to build on the original uh, myth around it in order to explain whatever the latest videos show, even some of the most indefensible things uh, that are taking place. If you're the average Russian and you wanted a kind of antidote to this stuff, could you go to like the BBC's website or put on CNN or you know, maybe The Guardian in Moscow to get a different picture of what was happening? In a lot of cases, you could. Uh, the Kremlin and, and the government have closed down a lot of opposition websites and made it difficult to see them. But you can still open things like the BBC. The BBC Russian is a very large news agency in Russia. Uh, I think a bigger issue is, would you? 
you know, if I'm a person who dislikes Vladimir Putin, who really dislikes the government, I'm not going to flip on Channel One in the morning. You know, people will call it the zombie box, uh, whatever you want to, but it has a reputation and it's seen as pandering to kind of pro-Kremlin supporters. You know, in the end, I do wonder to what degree any media on this war is really changing minds about what's taking place. People who want to view this war in one way view it that way, and people who want to view it differently see it in a different way. Yeah, that, that kind of polarisation, people just consuming the media that they agree with, is eerily familiar. But does it also apply to the way that Russians use the internet, like Twitter or Facebook, which are obviously not the most reliable sources of information, but are they at least somewhere where Russians could see a different story if they wanted to? It does to a certain degree. You know, places like Facebook are also siloed. And so our friends are are usually pretty cut off. Um, One thing that is interesting, though, is the way that Russians use Telegram, which is one of the most popular social networks in this country. Uh, And that's a place where I think that there's a much larger mix of uh, different kinds of media, of people seeing different points of view. So when you're on there, you know, one thing that I use as a reporter is one Telegram group that shows kind of very somewhat violent uh, videos from from wars. And this is something that unfortunately we have to look at in order to look into things like war crimes, uh, sometimes to just show us what's happening on the front lines. Um, but even though those are fairly, let's say, patriotic, one of them is, is fairly pro-Kremlin, I would say, uh, they do show videos that nonetheless show you that this is a much bigger conflict than what's being discussed on the news. So even though they might have the same political views, uh, the, the fact of the matter is the, the evidence just goes beyond what people are being told officially. And that's why it's, it's kind of a game changer. And what kind of game changer? How are people using apps like Telegram to, to push past the censorship and propaganda? One thing that's important is that uh, the Ukrainian side also uses you know, Telegram naturally. They, they speak the same language in many cases as the Russian side. And they have deliberately basically begun to create ways for Russians to go online and to find out more about Russians who have died during the fighting. And uh, one of those main initiatives has kind of shown, uh, it's called Find Your Own. Uh, and it's kind of a list of people who have been detained or been killed uh, during the war in Ukraine. Uh, and that's something that has broken through on the Russian side. We've seen cases where uh, families here have learned for the first time that their family members have died during the war. So that also plays a role. You know, there's direct targeting in terms of trying to get through to people about what's taking place. And how does the Russian government feel about the fact that social media is a place where they don't have total control, where the potential for information that contradicts their narrative to get through is pretty high if people want to find it? I mean, are they trying to crack down on on Facebook, on Telegram, on the other apps that people use? Yeah, they are. And, you know, I think that in particular, Facebook uh, seems to be the target. So if you open up Facebook right now without a VPN, uh, your photos won't load or the whole website might not load in certain cases. And while I've been sitting here and and just looking at the television earlier today, I mean, I've seen two segments already about the fact that Facebook is now the number one, let's say, provider of fakes in the Ukrainian war. And that if Facebook does not comply with the Russian watchdog's requirements to kind of remove these these photos and, and videos, etc., uh, Facebook could be closed down in Russia. That was seen as a major step, something that would be huge uh, six months ago or earlier. And right now, I almost expect it. 
And do we know if the Russian people are buying it? Like, we've seen reasonably small protests in Moscow and other Russian cities over the past week calling for an end to the war. How significant are those demonstrations? And do we know what the wider Russian public actually thinks? I think those demonstrations are significant. They're always significant to show that uh, there are Russians who are opposed. I think that they are profiles and courage of people who are going out and really, you know, t- putting their livelihoods and putting their safety on the line to make their, their voices heard. I don't think that they will have a significant effect on Kremlin politics right now. You know, just from being here for 10 years, I've never really seen street protests change Kremlin policy. And re- rejecting that, rejecting street protests, rejecting the voice of protest is almost like an axiom of the Russian government. They are important because we start to see some pretty prominent people involved in them. And that could mean that a lot of elites don't like what's going on either. You know, Russians feel like they're Europeans in many cases, particularly in cities like Moscow, by the food they eat, by the music they listen to. And that's all disappearing right now. And some of the big, you know, bigger names we see, the children of oligarchs, uh, other people speaking out against the war, uh, that maybe could have an effect, could indicate that, um, that they're is less support for this war than we thought among the elite. Okay, so that's the elite and people living in Moscow. But what about in the wider country? Is there any polling or anything that gives a sense of how, like, the average Russian is thinking about this? When it comes to the wider Russian public, the polling we have, and, you know, some of this is public and some of it is less public, uh, really indicates that a majority of Russians do support it, that they were right to launch an attack on their neighbour that Russians are right to be fighting against Ukrainians right now. Whether or not they understand the full gravity of what's happening um, might not be true. But on the other hand, if you're pulling somebody and asking them, you know, what they think about the situation, you kind of have to accept their reality. And I think that's the kind of key uh, focus for the Kremlin right now is not causing really popular unrest and popular unhappiness. Coming up, the Kremlin can whitewash the news of the Ukraine invasion. But how does it spin away the impact of the war on ordinary Russians? One thing that I wonder may be putting some pressure on the Russian public is that in the past few days, we've seen this global wave of revulsion that's been set off by the invasion, and that's led to crippling financial sanctions, Russia effectively being cut off from the global economy in an unprecedented way. Now, now that's not messaging. For the average Russian, it doesn't matter if they're following the news or not. Like, they must be feeling that. What impact is that, is that having on the budgets and finances of the average Russian so far? So, so far, pretty much every Russian has noticed that the value of the ruble has collapsed and it it seems to be getting worse and worse. What does that affect them for? It mainly affects, you know, a couple of things. It affects, first of all, the ability to buy foreign goods. You know, your iPhones are more expensive. Uh, Foreign food is more expensive. And that's going to definitely hit your budget uh, during the day. Two is, you know, any kind of travel or anything like that uh, going abroad starts to become prohibitively expensive for, you know, the Moscow jet set or for just like ordinary Russians, middle class who, who might want to go abroad in the future. 
I think for the larger Russian public, while the economy is getting worse, uh, I don't think it's so much their budgets that are being hit, but it's going to be the longer kind of effect of just Russia going into a really kind of fortress Russia uh, economic situation. One thing that's had to happen this week is the central bank has raised rates to 20%. Uh, that means that uh, if you want to get a mortgage, for instance, uh, your mortgage rate is going to be higher than 20%. It's going to be higher than that rate. Uh, it makes it extremely difficult for businesses to exist. And what we're going to start to see are layoffs. We're going to see businesses closing down. Um, and that's the real issue is that Russia is is facing a sort of massive economic crisis right now. And it doesn't look like it's going to change at all. It sounds like in conversations, at least with you, many Russians are expressing support for what's happening in Ukraine. But do you see anything around you that suggests that they, they understand what deep trouble the country is in, how uncertain the future for Russia now has become? I woke up this morning and I wrote three friends of mine, uh, along with a bunch of others who, you know, I just wanted to ask them what they thought about the war. Uh, and three of them told me that they had actually already left the country. I didn't even realize they had. Uh, much of my morning today has been spent worrying about these kind of rumors that are going around that uh, there could be a mass mobilization, that the borders could close. It's not based on solid reporting, but it's just that it seems to have gotten kind of out into the public that it might not be possible to leave the country at a certain point. One businessman that I was talking to earlier this week uh, was just about to go into a meeting with his employees. He had about 100 employees and he was about to walk in and say, um, you know, I'm leaving the country uh, tomorrow or later this week with my wife and my two kids. Um, we kind of both actually broke down during that because it was a really hard conversation um, because he had to tell them that he wasn't abandoning this company. He wasn't abandoning them. Some of them have family in Ukraine. That he wasn't going to just take the money and run, which could be their fear. But at the same time, he had two kids, nine-year-old boys. Uh, and he said that uh, he just was looking at Russia, looking at the situation. And the way he said it was that if, if Russia stays the way it is under Putin, then they have no future here. Nothing will change here. And I think that's the feeling that people have. That's why people are leaving, because it's so unclear. But they just they don't see a future for themselves here anymore. That sounds really dire, but I wonder, like, is that a source of, of pressure? I mean, how do you spin around the fact that every Russian has suddenly gotten poorer, it's harder to run a business, you know, their budgets have gotten more expensive? Like, is that something that is a source of meaningful pressure against Vladimir Putin? It could be, but I think that people are being told that it's not his fault, but it's the West's fault. Why, are, why do these sanctions exist? Well, on the one hand, you could argue it's because Russia invaded Ukraine and now that's kind of provoked a backlash. But if you turn on Russian TV right now, you get a very different message. And the message you get is that the West hates Russians. That's the real problem, is that sanctions can cause pain, but they can't really always control the message around that pain. And I think that one of the real fears is that uh, as Russians become poorer, uh, they'll also be watching the same kind of stuff that I'm watching right now, which tells you that the reason that the economy is so bad is just because the West is basically trying to destroy us. The West wants to make your life worse. And if you need the proof, just look at, look at your pocketbook. Look at what's happening to you right now. And, you know, we know that ordinary Russians aren't getting the full story of what's going on in Ukraine. But is the truth at least reaching the Kremlin? I mean, 
when Vladimir Putin talks to his advisors, are they telling him what's really happening on the ground? Or are they just so terrified of him that, that he too is getting this completely deluded picture? It's a fantastic question. Um, and it's hard to say because, you know, we don't have a direct line to Vladimir Putin. All we can do is look at what he says and try to react and try to understand how he sees the world. Um, what it seems like to us is that I think in terms of the military concept, he always clearly had a real idea of what he wanted to do, at least for the last year of launching a very large invasion of Ukraine. But in terms of what he understands about Ukrainian society, it seems like no. You know, the way that the war has been prosecuted and the, the way that the Russian troops first kind of attacked, it seemed like they either expected the Ukrainian army to roll over or they expected ordinary Ukrainians to meet them with, you know, flowers, basically, to welcome Russian troops into their cities um, for saving them. And anybody who's been to Ukraine in the last eight years can tell you that the country has changed a lot as a result of the annexation, the war in the, in the southeast, uh, and that there are very few people who openly sympathize with Russia anymore in that country. So in some ways, it seems like he had a very rose-colored view of how this conflict could go and what could happen. And that's very clearly now uh, been shown to, to not reflect the reality. Russia has to adjust what it's doing as well. The problem with propaganda is that the people putting it out at some point begin to believe it as well. Absolutely. I actually believe that Vladimir Putin doesn't, you know, he's not sitting around watching Channel One like I am right now or sitting around watching kind of these other channels. But he does seem to have his own sources of, of very kind of rose-colored views of what's going on inside of Ukraine. And people do bring up the idea that, you know, maybe his advisors will become uncomfortable at a certain point. Uh, but I assume that a person who has appears to be so paranoid as Putin, and if you ever flip on the TV and watch him talking to, uh, to his, his advisors, he sits at this table that's like 20 feet, 25 feet long, and these guys are sitting all the way down at the other side. Uh, you are not getting within five feet of Putin. And I think that also has the effect of just making it very difficult to get to him in general. He is siloed. Uh, he is in a bunker at the moment. And that makes it very difficult, I think, for any kind of popular or public kind of protest to really affect him at this point, even inside the Kremlin. Uh, he has been preparing for this moment, I think, for a long time. And he understands basically how to kind of play the people around him. That was Andrew Roth, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. Thanks very much to him. Before we go, for more on Ukraine, go and subscribe to our new podcast, Politics Weekly America. In today's episode, Jonathan Friedland speaks to retired Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the guy who testified against Donald Trump for that notorious phone call he held with President Zelensky back in 2019, which saw Trump impeached for the first time. They discuss why Trump's actions could have had direct consequences for Ukraine right now. That's on Politics Weekly America, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America at every Friday. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mithley Rao. We're back Monday. This is The Guardian.